TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast. This is episode 30. For you, the listeners of the Bike Nerd Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Wagon Chutes, yes, what have you been listening to lately? So the, you know, there's a whole new slate of Star Wars books getting ready to come out, but right oh. now, but right now is sort of the quiet before the storm. So for my trip uh, to Seattle tomorrow, I've downloaded Star Wars: The Force Awakens. It's the novelization of of the most recent movie, and it's authored by Alan Dean Foster, who also was the author of one of the very first Star Wars novels back in 1978. Oh wow! Yeah, That's so they nice they story. brought it they brought him back to to you know create the novelization of a movie. Awesome. Very cool. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM for your free audiobook. What's the word? Oh, man. You know, I had a week off from Vancouver, but I'm heading right back to the Pacific Northwest to Seattle. Such a Uh, traveler. I know, for the NACTO Designing Cities conferences. And, well, that'll be good. Are you speaking? Are you presenting? Or just uh, observing? You know, I have uh, I have one presentation that I'm scheduled to do, and then they also do this. They also have this program time where people can submit um, topics, and then yep. they sort of like program it and let you have like an hour to let, talk with anybody that wants to talk about it. And so the work is planning to do sort of submit one of those topics and have a discussion, you know, related to low stress spike networks. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So, talk to me about Star Wars releasing new books. Will those eventually turn into movies? Um, you know, most of the books that are getting ready to come out are actually leading up to the new movie that's coming out this December, Rogue oh, okay. One. So, it's sort of like the the story before this, movie, this new movie takes place. Also, what's coming out in just a couple of weeks, actually, is this really cool book called Ahsoka. And Ahsoka is like a character from the Clone Wars cartoon TV show. And uh, she became a pretty beloved character amongst the Star Wars fans. And uh, this is a book about sort of the, you know, the next step in her life. There's, there's this period of, of Ahsoka's life that isn't chronicled yet. And I think this novel is going to sort of fill in some of those gaps. Why is she so beloved by the Star Wars community? You know, I think she was one of like the, like a really captivating, strong female lead. Um, and in the Clone Wars show, she uh, exhibits like a level of ethics and courage that forces her to leave the Jedi Order. Um, and uh, I think people just really sort of connected with her in a, in a lot of ways. Like even Carrie, like my wife has like an Ahsoka t-shirt, like even she, oh, cool. yeah, she's and Carrie is not like a star Wars fan, but she sort of recognizes, you know, the importance and uh, you know, what sort of Ahsoka stands for within, within the star Wars universe. I will have to do some research on this chick. I like the sound of her. Yeah. And the, the woman who like did her voice actually created like her own, 
female-oriented clothing brand that sort of is caters to women that are really into like sci-fi and geeky nerd stuff. Oh, it's, cool. it's, it's called Her Universe. And Carrie and I got to meet her um, when we were in London this past summer. And it was a really cool experience. She, Her name is Ashley X9. She's actually from Collierville, Tennessee. No way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's insane. Yeah. Did you, like, what age is she? Uh, she's probably my age, which is a little older, a little, a little, a little older than your age. Yes. No, that's really interesting. <laughs> Where does she live now? Uh, Florida, maybe? Question mark? Question mark? Yeah. I want to know more about her. I can, I'll send you the details. And yeah, the, please And the book do. comes out, you know, I, I don't think it's this week. It might be next week that it comes out. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I've got like the pre-order on audible.com like queued up. And so as soon as it, as soon as it pops into, uh, existence, it'll be on my phone ready to listen to. Well, I look forward to discuss the, the book at, at our next, at a po- future podcast. <laughs> hey, did you do another freewheel in Memphis yes. this past so week? So on Wednesday, the 21st, we had our second freewheel and we had over 60, participants the whole fleet was revert reserved so the whole fleet free fleet was reserved and we did another route and we had a drone so there's drone footage that you can find on facebook and i may share it on the bike nerds podcast page as well and it was really fun it was a really good mix of people that had a ton of fun the first time and then a lot of new new folks that were trying it out and i really enjoyed that it's really not the usual suspects of people who are biking in Memphis, I do mm-hmm. think it's folks that you know don't have a bike, or their bike has a flat, or they you know bring out their bike just to do this ride. So it's been really kind of exciting to kind of empower folks to ride on the streets of Memphis and explore kind of our medical district in downtown. So it's been a lot of fun. Good. And then you went on an, another bike ride last night, right? So you just been like bike riding. I've been like nonstop riding, and it was so. Yesterday was a Memphis event, which is an event we do here. In Memphis, where a few community organizations kind of take over a underutilized block. So this was Film Row downtown, where a bunch of film studios and production studios um, were really happening in the, I think, the 20s and 30s and 40s. And now are a bunch of vacant buildings. And so I biked down there and kind of hung around downtown and sweated a lot. It was really hot. Is it hot still? It's really hot. It was like in like the 90s. I like... It was hot. I was like totally got so dehydrated. Cold here. <laughs> um, and then I went to the show with a friend, and we watched this like great historic rock band, Snow Globe. And then we just like biked and drank our way around the city until like two a.m. with a group of like thirteen folks and it was so fun it was actually that like this like group of like people that are way cooler than me that like bike at night that i wanted to become a part of and was i got it, to hang out with them was it the midtown bike gang no it was like david evans one of the mechanics at oh. bike smith and like his crew got they're it. way cooler than me yeah yeah they can so like felt, they, can, they can like jump stuff on their bike yeah no they can like jump stuff and they actually were like you're actually pretty fast and <laughs> i will like maybe put that on my gravestone <laughs> actually had, per- sarah I, here lies sarah stutter actually <laughs> pretty fast i don't know i think they thought that maybe i would be like you know like way in the back but i could totally hang so i'm gonna carry that with me this oh week. my goodness <laughs> uh have you recovered from our vancouver adventures yet i have 
Yeah. I um, miss like I miss, you know, the times and the oysters, but but I feel good. A lot happened last week, so there wasn't really any time to to recover. Just keep on moving. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I did notice like a decline in food. Um when I got back, I actually just I, I kept like the bread and cheese breakfast going. Yeah, um, the way to go. Long, so. I think I have I did the same thing actually, I but like, I haven't been cutting my grapes in half. Well, <laughs> it's really there's really only one way to eat them, and that's cut in half. <laughs> uh, so on this episode is the first in our our series now yes. of interviews that we actually did in Vancouver at the Pro Walk Pro Bike Pro Place conference. Uh, it's our friend Jameson Hutchins, and as I was thinking about. I think for the next four weeks, we actually have uh, guests that were that were interviewed in Vancouver. And as I was thinking about what sort of tied them all together, they were all uh, people that we had tried to get on the podcast before. And for one reason or another, we either messed up their recordings or weren't able to get the recording done. So these are all like makeup recordings for us. You're actually correct in that, <laughs> which I actually think made them potentially... Not that not all of our recordings are great, but we had already kind of had a background conversation <laughs> with a lot of the folks about yeah. the work we were doing. And I was also thinking that there was a theme that came through through our conversations at ProWalk around like neighborhoods and how neighborhoods are really important and kind of creating, you know, bike networks and bike culture. And um, I think there's a I think it'll be a really good series um, that we recorded. Yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's going to be a lot of fun. So this interview with Jameson actually opens up with a discussion about uh, taking a photo of Jameson so that we can use it for the cover <laughs> the cover shot for the podcast and just Which just we didn't just do. to warn everybody we didn't actually ever take the photo. We so. did take a photo, but it was like at a dance party very late at night. Yeah, and it is probably not safe for Facebook. It's pretty blurry, and <laughs> you can barely tell who's in it. Uh, but you know, our apologies for wasting five minutes talking about photos, <laughs> and then we and then we never actually came through <laughs> with an actual photo. So there's there's a piece in there about how about how. Uh, I've sourced the photo that everybody has seen on the podcast this week. Um, and I'll, yeah, just, little I'll sort of leave it at that. <laughs> a little background to, to the workings of the Bike Nerds podcast. But Jameson's doing awesome stuff in Indianapolis. Uh, he and I have been good friends for, for quite some time, and he's continuing you know, the fight at the city level uh, to make Indianapolis you know, one of the best biking places in the country. And I, I, was just, I, I got to visit him this past June, and he's doing a killer job there. Awesome. Well, let's hit it. We messed up the last interview, and you were gracious enough to come back. Yeah, I mean, uh, came all the way to Vancouver just so I could finish this up. So, <laughs> the Bike yeah. Nerds podcast has that star power now. Kind of does. We can bring people across the continent. <laughs> At their expense. <laughs> we spare no expense, especially not our own. Hey, and thanks for the view, too. I know hey, this you, place is like cool, right? I know you can't see this, radio people, but it's pretty amazing. It really is fantastic. Maybe could you like take a picture of this and like post it? Uh, I think we're gonna have to do. Yeah. I was actually thinking we could do like one of those fancy like three sixty views. Oh yeah. Well, we'll, we'll take a like, photo of this for the podcast episode cover. Yeah. Right, because I'm always like on Facebook looking for photos of people. The A. Don't have other people in them. Yeah. B, aren't totally ridiculous, and if I used it, somebody would be upset. <laughs> You're not getting your approval? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> just, just, that takes way too much time. 
uh, and C, if preferable, to have a bike in it. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize you had those that, metrics. That's, that's my Thanks criteria. For sharing. Yeah. Well, it did kind of sound like he just made them all up as he was going. So. Well, no, no, because <laughs> I've looked through Jameson's photos on Facebook. Oh, geez. And the photo that I actually pulled to use for him a while ago when we had the first episode, and I was getting it all ready, uh, was a picture of me and his wife, and I cropped his wife out. Hey. <laughs> I'm not listening to this, honey. <laughs> She's gonna be so mad at me. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel I I don't feel bad about like using somebody's photo that's on Facebook. No, it's that's in the, them. It's in the public realm. But I feel I do feel bad about like having like a family member gangling around in the background of a yeah. photo and then posting that. That's that feels wrong to me. That's where I There's draw the line. There's some privacy things there. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And some people have. Great photos that are easy to choose from. You're like, that's the one. Uh, I definitely don't. Uh, some people. I definitely don't have any. I don't take pictures of myself. So, <laughs> I yeah, they're probably some people like Jameson things. only have photos of him and his wife. <laughs> my, How old my, was it? my dog, my son, I don't know. and probably my wife. I can, I can pull it up here and we can uh, we can take a look. But. But I think I think since we're here, we should take a photo of Jameson. That maybe maybe with the view Ooh, behind him, yes, and like it'd be that. like Jameson, like me Jameson. looking out the window with like the thinking pose, oh, whatever pose you want. Like an arm against like the, the window's railing. open as well. Mm, you could out. actually you could actually <laughs> hang outside photo. the window, <laughs> like Spider Man on the other side. Yeah, you could probably jump and just uh, land right in the middle of that bike lane down there. You could, yeah. We'd watch from up here. He went. He went out the way he would want. You forgot your phone in a bike lane. Yeah. So here's here's the photo that I pulled from the internet. That's a good photo. Uh, that is a good photo. And then I just I did just corrupt Jameson's oh, head out of that. Do you touch your computer screen like that often? No. Just, Never touch my I, computer screen. I, you know, this <laughs> one. Yeah. You just like, touch your screen. Well, I just I just I, just, I, I did in my I office, office and they're like, oh yeah, and I'm like, oh. Oh my gosh, when people touch my screen at work, I have to like act like I'm a different person. I have like and not a, be like, please don't do that. Yeah. I, I don't a, even care if this is the work computer. I have a little cloth. I'm just clean it. No. Maybe you should just instead of get the cloth, maybe not you should just get like a like a <laughs> finger <laughs> mitt. Just oh, one finger yeah. cloth. Mm-hmm. And you just put on, you're like for when I'm touching it. Yeah. I like that. A little white glove treatment for the computer. So, Jameson, the way that we've set up the mic <laughs> is when I ask you questions, I can't look at you, which is really, really awkward. Um, but when did you get in Vancouver? Uh, Monday. Monday afternoon. Is this your first time here? It is. Yeah. What's your first impression? Uh, it's uh, it's beautiful. Um, geographically, it's just uh, it's just a really it's a it's a unique city. It's yeah. I mean, it's got touches of, like, Seattle a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, I did my undergrad at the University of Montana, so, like, I mean, I really like the mountains, but, I'm, you know, so I enjoy that piece of it, too. But I think there's something special for a city that has mountains and water that just come and, and meet, so. But, yeah, the last, um, it, it didn't see much of it the first couple of days, and then yesterday and today, been able to ride around and um, just really great infrastructure here. It's pretty sweet. I just got back from a bike ride, and I was struck by how seamlessly the protected bike lanes flow one to another. Yeah. And the tour, the tour guide that was on the bike ride, just did. We 
basically would go down a street, we would turn up a block, go back up the parallel street, turn a block, go back down. We were sort of making this zigzag through downtown, yeah. all unprotected bike lanes, uh, almost always sort of making, you know, great turns mm-hmm. and signals. And it was just, it was just seamless. And, and the, the thing that really also struck me was that when that stopped, when there was like something that caused that not to happen, you immediately sort of like felt like uneasy, right? Because there yeah. was there was like this level of comfort of being in the bike, the protected bike lane, and then as soon as you were exposed, it was like, whoa, whoa, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah. No, I was impressed. I no, to no surprise, anyone got really, really lost, but I still felt safe. I mean, I was like obviously not following any directions, but managed to man- be lost on protected bike lanes, which was pretty nice. Yeah, and their neighborhood greenways are. Really impressive. So we're staying in an Airbnb across the water. Um, uh, Can you see it from here? You can't. I was just looking. Um, but I was also trying not to make the chair creak too much. Um, <laughs> don't move. Don't Jesus. move. Um, so it's like a 20-minute ride uh, kind of in a neighborhood. Kit- Kitsilano, I think, is what it's called. And uh, just it's awesome. Like just great neighborhood greenways and really complete and, yeah, really nice. So... They know how to do it. It's uh, it's probably the closest uh, kind of like the Dutch feeling of like you just you know when you're in neighborhoods and you just feel that it's different and and it, everything just kind of works together. So how would you compare it to Indianapolis? I mean, you know, downtown Indy's got you know some great infrastructure that provides a lot of that same you know sentiment. So what's your what's your radar say about Indy versus Vancouver? Um, uh, well, it's, it's hard to compare a little bit. I mean, it's hard to compare anything to the cultural trail just because it's, um, you know, it was, it was all done at once. So it was like an eight mile piece of infrastructure that was all done at once where here you can tell that things have come in at stages. And, and, and one thing that I've noticed that I really like is that you can kind of tell whether it's between like newer, like infrastructure that's a little bit newer um, or it's like from a protected bike lane to a neighborhood greenway. Everything isn't like um, it's. It, they have like some really quirky sometimes just fixes. Like it, they don't try and over engineer a little problem, like a little connection between two streets. It's just they make a paved cut through and a little bit of signage. They don't need to like make a big deal out of it. Um, but uh, I think some of the neighborhoods have. Uh, have some similar qualities. I mean, we have a really great street grid in our um, kind of in our mile square, and then out into our first and second ring of neighborhoods. Um, and it's been really good, being, especially being on the neighborhood greenways, because that's something that we are getting ready to really ramp up um, in Indianapolis. So it's it's been a really timely and good trip. So it's it's tough to compare, but I mean, they do have some really great greenways, and that's one of our big strengths too, outside of the cultural trail and. Um, I know I think that we have a lot of really great connected infrastructure, um, and I think that they do too. Like you said, I got I got kind of lost a few times, but I never felt like a uh oh, I'm just in, right. I don't know how to get anywhere. It's just it's also nice because you know it's like one side is the water and <laughs> the city side is the 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 mountains and the city, so you always like know at least if you're going west or east. So. I think I, what I heard you say was Indianapolis is way better than Vancouver. <laughs> I didn't say that, but <laughs> I, I, Kyle said it. In summary, I think what, what I heard you say. Well, no, I was you know I was talking about uh, this with somebody uh, 
today earlier, like, you know, you kind of get used to, um, what you have. And I think that, you know, the, like I said, the cultural trail, and again, I, I can't take any credit for the cultural trail. I just get to connect current and future infrastructure into it. But, um, you know, noticing that it is something that's really unique outside of it's not it's not anything that you find in in NACTO or any kind of design guide. It's and that's because it really came about because it was a it was really like a place making project. It, it I don't think the number one goal when they were building designing fundraising it wasn't necessarily transportation point A to point B as quickly as possible. It was the experience and you know just the journey. So. Um, it has it, you know, the cultural trail has its quirky parts and that's, I think that's what gives it character. And, you know, I think that's why people like it so much and it's just, it's enjoyable. So what does the next two or three years look like around neighborhood greenways or infrastructure in Indianapolis? Um, yeah, the neighborhood greenways piece is, uh, is really important kind of in our, the development of where we are. Um, we've got a new mayor, uh, mayor Hogsett who came in at the beginning of the year uh, he campaigned on neighborhoods. Uh, Indianapolis for lots of years has had a, like a focus, a strong, um, you know, on our urban core, uh, tourism is a big deal. Convention centers, you know, all our sports aims are downtown. So we've always had a strong urban core and, um, and so, and we've built infrastructure, whether it's just, you know, bike lanes or, you know, our trails and greenway system and, really we're at the point now where we need to start getting into that next level and actually getting to where people live. And so, um, as you know, as our mayor, you know, came in and talking about how he wants to strengthen neighborhoods and, you know, make the places that we live better. I think that it's very timely that that's really what we need to do with our bike infrastructure as well. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. We've started a pilot, um, a pilot project actually through our, um, Dutch cycling fellow uh, program, Angela, who was uh, yeah. on your show a little while ago. Um, she has been to Indianapolis a couple times. I think she's, I would, I would be willing to bet that she's probably the only Dutch person who's been to the States probably maybe three times, maybe only two, and both of them been to Indianapolis. Um, but I think she genuinely, you know, she goes back and, you know, she she always has good things to say. And I, you know, it's always nice when somebody from out of, well, out of state, but especially out of country, right. and so on, um, you know, kind of, because I get used to it. You know, I think we get used to our own bubbles and what we have. And we, de- we develop our own rest. But when somebody who's never been there comes and you kind of take them around and you can tell that they're genuinely kind of feel safe and enjoying, you know, um, the infrastructure in the city, it, it makes you feel really good. So... Um, so we started a pilot project as part of uh, her visits, and we uh, selected a neighborhood, and we're working on neighborhood traffic calming. How did you select the neighborhood? Uh, it was um, it was kind of a mix of needing to find uh, a neighborhood that had people who were relatively organized, had been talking about some of these mm-hmm. things, because uh, we didn't, as part of the pilot, we didn't really have the time, capacity, and money to go out and kind of like uh, organize people to kind of like tell tell them what you want to do and all this stuff. So we knew there was this, it had part to do with geography and where it was and existing potential connections with existing infrastructure, um, some infrastructure projects that were happening and just knowing that there was, um, you know, a group of organized neighbors that were really 
gonna help keep me and keep the project going. And I think that that was really important because just capacity wise, and I, I know that Kyle understands this, um, you know, being sometimes a one person show uh, in the bike program that I, I didn't have every day to focus on this one program. And it worked out really well because strong neighbors were the ones who were writing emails and making sure that neighbors were, you know, meeting and talking about projects and talking about things that were discussed and sending out flyers about, um, you know, uh, test projects that we were going to do and uh, what was coming up. So it was, it was just a little bit of all that. I mean, just knowing that for a pilot to be successful, that there had to be a little bit of, I mean, kind of very similar to, I think the selection process, uh, of like the green lane project. Um, you know, a project like that, you needed, you needed to know that there were, there was stuff going on and stuff was going to happen and people were already interested in it instead of going into a city and spending a year of your time to, you know, like get people excited about it and then you don't have much time left. So, so what's the neighbor's vision for their neighborhood? Um, yeah, so we, it was kind of a mix of the last couple of years of going to a lot of different cities around, around, uh, the U S and the Netherlands and Copenhagen as part of the study tours. Um, and I think what's also making it really effective is we're using uh, uh, similar tactics, tactics to uh, like what Portland does with street uh, city repair. So we're using intersection murals for traffic calming and aesthetics, um, uh, partnering with an organization called Big Car, which ironically, that's their name and they have nothing to do with cars. They're just an arts organization. <laughs> Can you speak more to why they're named Big Car? I honestly I can't. Uh, Jim Walker. Is it like C A R. Yeah, and their logo is uh, Big Car. <laughs> uh, I think if, if yeah, I think if I remember correctly, and I work with them a lot. They're they're awesome. Uh, and Jim Walker, who's the executive director, is here. I think one time I heard him tell the story that you know when they started out, it was like two of them, and they just thought it was like this ironic, like, hey, we're a you know because it's we're really small, we'll just call it you know. a I don't. I don't know. I, origin stories are the are the best. You may never actually know. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's actually gotten a few laughs um, because they've been like partners. Uh, you know, we've gone to conferences, right? And and, uh, and Andy Clark before has been like, he's like, who? Wh- why are you coming to the organization called Big Car? <laughs> and I'm like, it's you know, he thought it, he thought I was joking. Yeah. I don't think he knew the organization existed, and uh, <laughs> I was like, no, it's they're an arts organization, and you know, so. Uh, so yeah, we're 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 doing that. We're partnering with our local kind of beautification nonprofit called Keep Indianapolis Beautiful. So not only are we going in the neighborhoods and talking about um, uh, traffic and uh, you know traffic calming, but also opportunities for green space, um, you know, public art and all these kinds of things. So it's it's been a really cool way to engage neighbors and start these conversations that we haven't really been able to as a city just because of capacity and you know, just hasn't been a program that we've had. So, um, so yeah. I'm really interested about the kind of emerging conversation around transportation and public art, about how those are kind of really, I think becoming really easy ways that people are able to collaborate and connect, um, that I haven't necessarily noticed in the last few years that now a lot of people are talking about how kind of intersection murals and how public art can be used for calming and different kind of transportation tools. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's also really important just kind of from the, you know, from our side, from the, the city implementation side, um, it, because when you're going into neighborhoods and talking about this, you know, these kinds of projects, um, you know, and if we're calming traffic in, in neighborhoods and making streets nice for people to live on and just 
be around, walk on, you know, walk around and just feel comfortable. Um, you don't even have to put bike infrastructure, you know, you don't have to put protected bike lanes or anything. It's just, if those streets are already nice, they're kind of inherently nice to ride your bikes on. They're, they're those side streets that, you know, you ride now or you rode as a kid. You're like, you know, your parents are like, stay off that street, but you yeah. can ride down that one because, and so, and that's how, how we're kind of building out our neighborhood greenway or system is just, um, you know, starting with some, some kind of corridors that we know fit into our, our current network where we have gaps or want to connect to. Um, but then really, um, engaging with the neighbors and finding out those gyms of streets that, that they ride because I know my neighborhood. I know the, the streets that I ride and those, those little secrets around town. Um, but, uh, looking at a map, you know, you might not, you know, I might not know the difference between two parallel streets, but then you go talk to neighbors and they're like, oh yeah, this happens on this street or, you know, traffic's whatever, some quirky thing maybe. And they're like, yeah, everybody rides this street. And, um, and it also just helps with the, just the engagement. I think people mm-hmm. really appreciate in the neighborhood just having those conversations and it gets, you know, helps them feel like they're, they're part of it and, and they really are. So. I mentioned in a presentation earlier today that in most cities, 80 to 90% of the street network are actually these kinds of streets. Like those big roadways actually make up in terms of like the number of miles, make up a very small amount of those streets. But, but, and it's a, it's largely an asset that cities have that they haven't capitalized on for bicycling in a real way. The other, the other flip side of that is that at some point, some of those neighborhood streets mm-hmm. are actually big roads sort of disguised as neighborhood streets. So, you know, there's parts of like suburban Memphis and suburban Indianapolis where if you were to go to like a suburban residential neighborhood and think like right. low stress street, the street would be like 40 feet wide with no lane markings, nobody's parking on the street, just like a right. huge highway. I worked in one neighborhood in Memphis, in North Memphis, in Raleigh, and I was there because they were having there were there were complaints coming from the neighborhood of cars speeding and going out of control. And it was right next to a school, and next to a there was a park and a school on one side of the street and houses on the other side of the street. And we dug into it. We had a bunch of meetings about it, and it, it turns out the street was just huge. And so you could you could line up cars side by side like six or seven across, right, and still drive straight down this street. And so I put this slide on the screen. It was a picture of a highway that I that I that I knew the width of, right? And there's like, like a, there's fields next to it and trees. And I said, "How fast would you all feel comfortable driving down this road?" Right. And they were like, "I don't know, sixty miles an hour, seventy miles an hour." And I did this. I did like a cool PowerPoint animation, right, where it where it faded into yeah. a photo of their street. I don't know if that's cool PowerPoint animation, but oh, go on. I'll show it to you later. <laughs> it's kind of cool. I'm, I'm so PowerPoint illiterate. I'm so jealous. But, but when the fade occurred, the street was the same because yeah. their street was the same width as this highway. Yeah. The only thing that changed were the houses and the school appeared on, on the image. And I was like, well, now how fast do you feel comfortable driving down right. here? And it, like, it made the point, yeah. right? Like, oh, not only you know, do we have these great assets around cities, but we've also built things that aren't congruent with what we actually want to see happen. Right. And that's, you know, we could keep going down this train of thought. We'll talk more about Jameson, but there's also something to be said in that, in terms of thinking about how the shifts in where people experiencing poverty are living, right. 
if we built really crappy suburbs for a very long time in this country and we thought it was the greatest thing ever and well-to-do middle-class white families moved out of inner cities to get to these oases but turns out you know 30 and 40 years later maybe they weren't quite the utopias we thought so as all these families begin to move back into cities and begin to sort of you know Prices on real estate begin to rise. Those experiencing poverty are oftentimes being pushed out into these really crappy suburbs, right? right? And yep. you're like, oh, no wonder there's so many pedestrian crashes out here. No wonder there's so many. We, we took a populace that is less car dependent than their white counterparts, and we moved them into areas that are that are required to have a car and we're having all these conflicts. And it's, it's just one of those cyclical things that you look at it, you know, 50 years later and you're like, Oh yeah, duh. No wonder we're having like this really weird problem. Uh, you know, the, uh, somebody's referred to it recently as like the suburbanization of poverty where hmm. we sort of are taking the poverty out of our cities, right. but we're just distributing it into these Moving old, somewhere else. these old systems that didn't work for white people, but now we expect them to sort of suddenly work. It's taxing transit systems who now have to serve populations that are much further than, right. than an ideal service area. Um, sorry. My, that, was my, never that was my that was my my soapbox rant. No, and, and for the one one little note on that about kind of like uh, you know thinking about sub, um, kind of just classic suburban development. Um, you know, uh, uh, cul-de-sacs and just you know you go in what and, and and really like that's in a way that's kind of what we're trying to create in some of these urban neighborhoods that we're trying to calm traffic in. Because if you think about it, like. A lot of those suburbs, like, and I'm not trying to say, like, we're trying to create the same looking development, but, you know, a lot of people move to the suburban developments because, you know, they go in there and kids can play in the cul-de-sacs, they play in the streets because cars aren't cutting through those neighborhoods. Um, granted, they're disconnected from a, a network and you kind of have to, once you get out of the neighborhoods, you're all funneled into one, you know, road or, um, but in a way, like, and that's, you know, having been to the Netherlands recently, like I, that's really kind of how, you know, they're they have their arterial roads or the roads that are serving their automobile traffic and they're efficient. And then they have like the islands or the zones within those more residential or commercial areas. And, you know, you can't there isn't a direct cut through and you can go in and you can go out really easy. But, you know, you can't just, you know, zoom through them. So it's. It's kind of something that uh, that I've noticed recently. And like I said, I don't want to recreate suburban-looking development in the cities, but you know, there's a reason that people like living there because their kids can play and mm-hmm. do all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Hmm. It just that was something that came to me kind of recently because. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, in Boulder, there are quite a few streets that dead end or end in a cul-de-sac. The, the exception, I mean, the, the sort of fascinating thing about that is they end for cars. They don't end for people. So right. on, my, on my way home from work, I actually go down 13th Street. I travel north on it out of work. And I go until it dead ends into a cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. And that's when a multi-use trail picks up that connects me to yeah. the community center, the community garden, and the goat dairy farm. It's like just north of there. So I don't have to go out to the main road um, by bicycle or even yeah. by foot. I can, I can continue along that pathway, and I think that's, you know, that's the at the heart of connected networks. You yeah. know, understanding. You know, we we can use the cul de sac in a way 
that limits movement by cars because that's, yeah. that's ultimately what we wanted to do. Right. But we still have to be able to move people. And I think that's where traditional suburbia failed, right? They yeah. they failed to move people and failed to move cars efficiently yeah. in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, and I mean, and I mean the, the American suburb, like it, like all of those traffic calming elements. And if you did have the kind of what the Dutch, you know, how they kind of refer to it as like bicycle permeability. So yeah, you have a cul-de-sac that cars can't get through. But if you have, you know, bike or pedestrian infrastructure that gets you out of that cul-de-sac. But obviously the issue is, you know, as soon as you get outside of those suburban neighborhoods, the land, like you have to, you have, you have to drive to get to, you know, like a strip mall of, you know, Mm -hmm. a grocery store and this and that. So it's like, it's kind of this weird mix of like, it's like these cool elements of traffic calming and, you know, reasons that people like these slow streets, but you know, once you get outside of it, you you know you don't have any of that biker just land use wise. You got to ride miles just to get to the nearest kind of like you know other land use. So, but yeah, we have a lot of suburbs in in around Indianapolis. So it's I've been been through a lot of them and and, and seen them. So because um, all we have is cornfields around us, we don't have mountains or the ocean or like the Mississippi River or. Are the suburbs driving conversations around transportation and bike infrastructure? Yeah, actually, I was just reading a story this morning in the IBJ, which is the Indianapolis Business Journal, um, kind of one of our two papers. Um, and there's a really long, couple-page long story that was uh, saying that um, northern, the northern suburbs, which and they're the most affluent, Carmel, Westfield, and Fishers, the title of it was northern suburbs race to be bike friendly. And I mean, they are putting in, again, they're, as they're building these new subdivisions, um, you know, they're putting in what we would call trails or greenways, um, you know, 10, 12, 14 foot asphalt paths, basically a sidewalks outside of them. And it's cool. Like, it's really great that they're doing that. And, you know, people use them more in a recreational Mm -hmm. sense. Like, you know, you come home and you go on a family. That's, it's awesome that it's happening, but it has a really hard time translating into kind of like using bikes in a utilitarian way. Right, because again, activity. like exactly like you can go out of your neighborhood and there's a path, but it's going to be four miles until you get, you know, somewhere. And, um, and then it's another four miles the other way to get to the, you know, the school or whatever. So, but yeah, they're, and it's, and again, the, you know, they're, they're very candid about it. Um, you know, the elected uh, representatives and the planners up there that, uh, it's about trying to attract people um you know i guess the young creative class um which is what mayor ballard you know that's really what um spurred him to really include bikes in the in the transportation mix in indianapolis but you know suburbs are realizing that um you know people graduating college and growing up in this generation they're just they want to live places that they can walk around the corner or bike around the corner and go out to eat or go to the grocery store or that kind of stuff so it's um yeah it's it's definitely happening it's and it's they're competing. Mm-hmm. What was the pizza place you took me to in Carmel? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Greek Tony's. Greek Tony's. Greek Tony's Pizza. It's yeah, neither, it's neither Greek nor there's neither a Greek Tony or <laughs> yeah. anybody there. But there should be a trail that goes directly to Good. that pizza it was, place. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, was like I worked at it for like five years on and off delivering pizzas when I was in high school. Um, and uh, still knows everybody there. Yeah, that's a, it's like one of the few. Well, I don't know. I, I want to say the few because there's, I'm sure there's fine, uh, really great family-owned <laughs> businesses in Carmel. But yeah, it's. I mean, like 
you know, Hugh and Sally, uh, you know, the owners uh, are still there Why during the day. Why name it Greek Tony? Uh, Another to, to be honest, I don't know. And I don't, I've never so heard it. It's kind of a, names. it's kind of a joke. And, um, I think, I don't know. I think in a way it was just one of those ir- ironic things, uh, because they'd always joke because so many customers would be like, Oh, who's they like thought they knew who Tony was. <laughs> and like, sometimes, you know, the, the old timey, or I don't say the old time employees, but like the family and the people who live, who work there would kind of like go with them yeah. and put their like was, Tony's out back was, yeah yeah making his Greek sauce they had, they had cheese yeah. sauce for you to dip your crust in really that's a that's yeah. a move for a high class pizza place seriously as far very as midwest they, they as have, well dip oh, cheese yeah. sauce to dip your yeah. crust your crust what's in? the other place that, lets you, that gives you cheese is it Monocle's Pizza is that in the midwest uh, may, I'm not familiar there is I, I I don't know if I've eaten there but I've heard of it it's there is Godfather. one in Indiana it's not Godfather's I think, I think it's Monocle's Godfather's yeah. is good though yeah Growing up in the Midwest is great. It was good. <laughs> yeah. So many carbs, so much cheese. Ranch is like my ketchup. Like yeah. I don't really like ketchup, and it's just like ranch is what I dip things in. Fries, crust, anything. Beautiful thing. But yeah, when we when we rode, we rode to Greek Tony's. Yeah, um, it was a long ride there. Yeah. What's the ride was, like? It was a satisfying meal at the end. Um, the ride is along the Monon Trail. Yeah. Your memory is insane. Jameson. The, I mean, the Monon's kind of, I think he it's gave in. Me, he gave me the cliff notes. It's before. in the, like, the Greenway Hall of Fame. I mean, it's, it's an old rail bed that goes, and what makes it, uh, and Kyle, when, when you were talking earlier in your presentation today about, you know, a lot of our Greenways are really great pieces of infrastructure, and but they don't always go where they need to go to kind of connect things. The Monon is why I think it's used so much is because it's a rail line that goes, it feeds right into downtown and connects now with the cultural trail oh, wow. right on the north bit. And then it, the, and now it's developed all the way out to 160th Street, which is about uh, maybe two, almost 20 miles north, just straight north. It goes through Broad Ripple and some, some of the dense uh, northern neighborhoods. Yeah. I made fun and, of Broad Ripple while I was there. I said it sounded like name? it sounded like a town that you would find in the the Shire from the <laughs> like a fairy tale, yeah, like a storybook. We are both going to go to the inn at Bree and then down to the Broad Ripple. <laughs> the Broad Ripple. <laughs> Gandalf is waiting for us yes. at the Broad Ripple. Yeah, no, but that's and and you know <laughs> it, there, yeah. it goes it, it goes right through Carmel, and that is that's like their beachfront property. Is I mean they're actually um, they just. The, they, the Performing Arts Center is there, right? Yeah. For Carmel. Like, so oh, that's yeah. where I rode. I was there for a conference, and there was an event. Did you perform? No, no, there was an event. Just kind at, of performing. There was I mean, a, it was the Conference of Mayors. <laughs> it was, I was singing and dancing. Uh, but but you rode down the trail, and then all of a sudden, here's this huge Performing Arts Center. The Palladium. This, this mixed-use development over here, and just mayors littering this lawn. And I was like, oh, this is the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, mayors. that's, I mean, that is beachfront property in Carmel, and that, they just, they have actually Gale Architects um, under contract to look at that stretch near the Performing Arts Center hmm. and the Palladium to widen it and make it, I mean, that's really, there is a main street, but really the Monon is there. You know what gets all the action. I'm gonna say I I rode it back at night. So I, I mean, what, what was I? How far was I? Was I 10 miles out? 20 miles out? Uh, 126, uh, about 12 miles. So 12 miles from your house, yeah. which is pretty close to the Monon too. Yeah, my right, house right is at like, the end of it. My house is like two blocks from it. Yeah, to Carmel. So when I rode back, it was like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, and it was dark, 
And were you allowed to be on it? I don't think so. No, no, actually, uh, well, in Carmel, I'm not sure if you were. But <laughs> once you got in Indianapolis, so we just pa- that was one of the things that we pretty recently just passed. Because um, when our all of our greenways and trails were originally built, um, well, and they're still kind of developed by our parks department, and mm-hmm. so they're basically considered linear parks, which are you know sunrise yeah, to sunset, sun. and which it had never really been. I don't want to say never, but it had hadn't been as big of an issue years ago when it was built. But now that uh, you know we've connected a lot of bike infrastructure and bike lanes, and then people are using it for transportation. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, you know we realize, and there's not really a great alternative. So you have a lot of like really busy streets that are the other north south or parallel that are, have no bike infrastructure, um, and so they're they're really important corridors. And you know, not everybody works. You know why it's light out, and it's uh, it, it was the time of day changes right, throughout the yes. year, <laughs> right? So, um, so yeah, we within the last two or three years we switched them to another twenty four hours. And it's when I was riding back, I was shocked at how many people were on the trail at yeah. ten and ten thirty at night. When as I approached the Broad Ripple, I'm mm-hmm. going to continue to refer to it as the Broad Ripple. Yeah, but as I approached the Broad Ripple, there were so many people on the trail. I had to dismount my yeah. bike and walk it through the people. Yeah. At 10 o'clock at night? I I forded the Broad Ripple. <laughs> I, I crossed the bridge uh, at the Sense Broad Ripple. Sense of drama. You should have performed. <laughs> there was no bridge, but there's no water. Is it named after a waterway? Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. I, there, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, the white... Yeah, the Broad Ripple. Uh, <laughs> the White River comes through. Okay. It cuts through Broad Ripple, and I, I do... I don't know my uh, Indiana history well enough. Indianapolis. But, yeah, I think it's because of... Uh, a big ripple. I believe it's also where Samwise, Gamgee, and Frodo <laughs> left yeah. the fellowship mm-hmm. on their journey sure. uh, towards Mordor. Right at the but, end of the first book. <laughs> yes. But um, it, I, I was shocked. There's just people everywhere. It, that's a, it's a bit of a college area, right? Uh, Butler University is pretty close. But yeah. college and, I mean, there's a... So it's about five and a half miles north of Indianapolis, or downtown. And... Um, so yeah, Butler is about a mile to the to the uh, west, but it's kind of like the even uh, people in the suburbs like it's it's like uh, what's 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 the street in uh, Memphis? It doesn't have as much history. Beale Street. Beale yeah. Street. Yeah, just you know, like a five or six block it street. It was date night. Just like, when, I, when I went through, it was date night. Yeah. There were couples everywhere. Holding hands. Yeah, yeah, blocking up my pathway <laughs> on the Monon Street. Yep. But you know, but I made it through, and you know, other than that, it was it was a superb ride this summer at night at ten o'clock at night, and I just put my headphones in and listened to a podcast on the way back. Fantastic! Yeah. And look at look at you now. Look at me now, podcasting. And Jameson's here in, in Vancouver, Vancouver with Jameson. So, what are you looking forward to the rest of your trip? What's on your itinerary? Uh, Highlights, lowlights. Actually, I'm leaving in the morning, and actually, uh, our flight is out at six forty in the morning. Ooh, so. Ooh, ooh. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, Not hopefully to making tonight. the flight on time, yeah. really. <laughs> or then I'll figure out what to do tomorrow if I miss it. Yeah, Not whole, going to sleep tonight. A whole nother day. Yeah. So. What's, um, so tell me about, you know, a little bit about, um, you know, biking in Indianapolis. I mean, you've been there for a long time. You're a user. Yeah, not, not just a practitioner, also a user. Yeah, yeah. I can confirm that Jameson has a lot of bicycles in his house. <laughs> not surprised. 
He's got an awesome son and wife who also, you know, travel by bike quite a bit. So, I mean, what's what's the experience been historically? And, you know, how would you would you say that you know, the cultural trail or other things have, have changed that dramatically? Uh, yeah. So. So, yeah, right now in, it's a it's a pretty, pretty exciting time in Indianapolis. So I I, I grew up there for the most part. I moved um uh, I moved there when I was in like first grade. I moved around a lot when I was young. I was there through high school, and then I kind of—I don't know—I didn't go to college right out of high school. I took a few years off to I don't know, get my rambunctious years out of me. And you know, when you finish high school, it's like no one should go right to college. Well, it's like you know, like you've been going to school your whole life, and now you're done, and you don't like all right, I have the summer, and then I go back to school. You're like. I don't have to go to school if I don't want to. And when you're like 18, you're like, yeah, yeah I don't have I to don't go to school. To. And uh, so, I, you know, I moved out and I got a, I was working at Greek Tony's for a part of it and yes. delivering pizzas and uh, it was good. It, so I got my independent years out a little bit and uh, then I moved to Montana. And so that was the whole, I moved to Missoula and lived there for about five years. And that was, it wasn't because of bike. It was because of the mountains. Um, but I found myself not having to get in my car unless I was going out of town or, or whatever. And I was just walking or biking everywhere. And then I moved back after I graduated. Um, my family is still there. And and, uh, and it really hit me that when I moved in with my parents for a brief moment that uh, I had to like plan every, you know, if I want to go meet friends for just a beer or something. I was like, well, it'll be a 20-minute drive to get there. And... Uh, so I ended up getting an AmeriCorps program and uh, worked with an organization called Health by Design and that did a lot of uh, advocacy and organizing around uh, transportation and, and urban planning kind of from the public health standpoint. And so when I moved back in like 2009, it, uh, Mayor Ballard had been in there for a little while and the first bike lanes had kind of gone on the street. Um, and at that time, for the most part, uh, bicycling was kind of like a, a recreational thing. So the Monon was there and... Mm -hmm. a, a huge thing. We had quite a few other greenways, but there wasn't anything that, uh, you know, kind of going back to that diagram that, or that, that slide you were showing earlier today, it was, it didn't connect to where, where people were living to where they needed or wanted to go. Um, but the cultural trail changed all that. Uh, so you had all these trails that came in to kind of just the outskirt of downtown and then whether it was a river or the, or the Monon, they just kind of like stopped there. And then there was no infrastructure downtown. And so, you know, the cultural trail came in and not only created a, a, a loop right in the heart of downtown, but it, you know, it has uh, one, two, three, four kind of spurs off of it that connect with all of those greenways. So, you know, now our 70 plus miles of trail and greenway that are there are now 100% connected through the cultural trail. It's it's pretty phenomenal that it was really like the, you know, the hub of mm. of the whole greenway system. The cultural trail came in, so you could ride, you know, you could ride 80 plus miles of of trail through a city and never really have to get on street. Um, so when I moved back, it was there weren't that many people riding bikes in downtown. Um, you know, it was like when I would ride to work on the two bike lanes that were in the city. And I'd see people and be like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, yes, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and now it's, it's awesome. Uh, just, you know, six, seven years later, like, uh, riding home on the cultural trail, like, you know, five, six, seven people stack up at, mm -hmm. at intersections, um, 
you know, waiting for lights and that kind of stuff. And I hardly, I don't know that many people and it's a, it's a good feeling because, um, so but it, a lot of that also has to do with just the development that's going on in the core of our downtown. We have a lot of surface parking lots or we have had and, um, which kind of on a map or, or when you walk around, it looks kind of, you're like, oh, that's ugly. That's gross. But, but now they're all kind of being bought up and developed into mixed use developments. And there's, just a lot of residential apartments, condos going mm-hmm. in, in the mile square in a very tight, dense, compact, more than a lot of us cities. Cause a lot of the other bigger cities, you know, like that real estate had been developed into, you know, uh, office buildings right. that you were just lobbies and, you know, off. And so people fled and, you know, after five o'clock and they were gone. But now, um, there's a, a pretty interesting, uh, level of density that's happening. And that's really, I mean, the cultural trail obviously helps, but that's really what is, um, is, I think, resulting so many people out on bikes. And it's kids and families, and it, it's, pretty, it's a pretty cool thing. So it's, uh, it, it's moving ahead. And, and the, one of the most important things that the cultural trail has done, at least in my, in my job, is that it's, uh, it's set that bar really high in terms of um, like the experience while you're riding. Right. So talking about low-stress infrastructure, that's kind of like – that's why so many people ride it, and it's really easy for me to relate to either trails or greenways or the cultural trail and say, look, we're, we can't build a trail on this route, on this road or street, and the cultural trail is really expensive, so we don't have the money to do that, but we can create a protected bike lane that gives you that same sense of mm-hmm. um, you know, safety or that low stress experience, um, it'll be on the street, but you'll be completely separated from traffic and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's just, uh, for me, it's, it's allowed me to, you know, kind of tap into people's like, yeah, we love the cultural trail. And then you kind of ask them like, well, what do you like so much about like, well, it's completely separated. All the intersections are controlled and that kind of stuff. And like, yeah, well, and then everybody becomes advocates pretty, pretty easily. I mean, they can, they can identify with it. So, um, Things are moving along really well, and it's fun. It's fun to see. So, it, and it's fun to be a part of. And it's it's all happening kind of the development and the shift in transportation is happening at the same time, which I think uh, you know I can't say this for certain, but I would imagine that in people's heads they're just kind of seeing them one and the same. Right. So it's it's easy to be like, oh yeah, well, instead of like we're going to do all this development and then we'll try and fit in bike infrastructure. Um, I mean, the development along the cultural trail is pretty staggering and there's, there's been research done by some local, uh, university, uh, institutes that has, has shown the return on the investment and the economic development and the increase in, um, you know, property taxes coming back to the city and that kind of stuff and on tracks of land that were just vacant. Yeah. Uh, and so it's pretty wild. Is there, is there just a lot of high-fiving on the cultural trail as you're riding? Uh, just random high fives to strangers. Uh, uh, not really. Um, but you know, it's and, it, and it's everyone smiling. Yeah, yeah high five. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely a lot of smiling. <laughs> high fiving. Like a magical place. Yeah, I mean it. It is. I mean it, it's it's really cool, and and you know it has a different character in the evening. Like Kyle, I think uh, I don't know if I rode with you, but like at nighttime, it's completely lit. And there aren't nearly as many people out, and you get to ride around the heart of downtown Indianapolis yeah, on this like we didn't go out at cool. night. Yeah, you didn't share that with me. Yeah. Um, well, we let's come back. Monon. That's what I got to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I will say this: you know, if you looked at a map of the Cultural Trail, 
it is not like a beautiful map, right? It's it's like squiggly. Yep. There's like lines going everywhere, and you're like, man, I'm gonna get lost. But I did have to ride it by myself because um, I was I was staying with Jameson, but he left one day, so I was there like t- to my own ends. And I thought about just crawling up in the fetal position on the couch and just you know not coming out, but I got hungry, <laughs> and so I I took the bike out to go find something to eat and. I just followed the cultural trail right. and it took me exactly where I should have gone. Yep. Right. And so even though it does like twist and turn and take you in some interesting you know, intersections and you're like, well, is this the right way? Well, I'm just going to trust the cultural trail to get me there. It, it does. And it, it's all clearly marked. It tells you exactly how to cross the street. My favorite part of the whole experience of riding it was a section that was close to your house near some restaurants and the cultural trail turns down an alleyway yeah. that's been like converted mm-hmm. into part of the trail. So it's between two buildings. There's restaurants on both sides. And it's just an alley space. Yeah. That was like I think that's my favorite the sort of like design feature is that it breaks away from the road and sort of gives you this almost like European feel, like yeah. you're like you're in Amsterdam yeah, you know, going down this skinny few, alley. There's like a couple bars back there, and they have patios, so you ride through. And yeah, it's that's and that's. I found myself, uh, you know, unless I'm like running late for something or whatever, like there's uh, there's almost always a more direct route that mm-hmm. I could get to. And our streets, especially in our downtown, are pretty slow. I mean, people are pretty respectful. And um, but you know, I will take an extra couple minutes just to ride the trail because it's it's such a pleasurable experience um, and such a unique one. And and to your point, you know, Randy Newfeld has said a few times because. He's up in Chicago, and he comes down every once in a while. They have a Shram. Zip Shram is in Indianapolis, so Zip Wheels, the super fancy carbon fiber wheels, um, was started in Speedway, and uh, they uh, recently, well, and they bought bought by Shram, and then they got bigger. So Randy comes down, and uh, he's told Brian Payne, who was the mastermind, the the fundraiser, and the really the visionary behind the trail. He's like Brian, you know what? You know what makes the cultural trail so great is that um, is that it was put where it needs to go instead of where it was easy to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was probably easier routes, you know, not taking a lane of traffic here or parking here, but it wouldn't have connected. And that was really the whole vision of the trail was, you know, the city came together and had this marketing exercise or just kind of branding exercise around creating these cultural districts, um, whether it's uh, nightlife or retail or historic or whatever reason. So there's six cultural districts, and Brian was the one, Brian Payne was the one that said, you know, we need a way, and having the experience of, you know, riding with his son on the Monon, saying we, there needs to be a way for people to get between all of these without, without driving, because that's, you know, that's not going to keep them vibrant. And, um, and so it's, it's, that was one of the major goals at at the onset was connecting the places, not just like, Oh, we'll go here and oh, people can get there if it's a few blocks yeah, away. Figure it out. And, and yeah, I mean, and the, the section that you're talking about on Massachusetts Avenue is a good example of, yeah, it doesn't go straight down Massachusetts Avenue. Um, but, uh, it, it zigzags through the neighborhoods. It goes right by a school. Um, you know, I'm behind, on a nice day, probably 20 or 30 kids that are riding to school on the cultural trail that weren't doing it before the trail was there. Um, and it, 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 it's just, I don't know. It's a cool experience. And, you know, $2 million of it was, uh, back to our conversation earlier about neighborhood traffic calming, $2 million plus of it was, uh, of the fundraising went towards public art. So 
it's not again it's not just like a protected bike lane that goes there's there's tons of public art around yeah there well i think i heard about it back when i was doing more strictly kind of creative placemaking yeah. and arts and culture based work because it was this this great placemaking project that is also a transportation project and now is influencing kind of other transportation pieces all throughout indianapolis so i mean you know it's super cool it's super cool yeah. Last question. Yeah. Who's your favorite co-host of the Bike Nerds podcast? Oh, jeez. That's a terrible question. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're both here. You've met Sarah now. What do you think? Um, <laughs> my favorite co-host is the person talking into the other microphone. <laughs> nice one. You very can't very tell. Very There's only one microphone. So uh, they said it earlier. So I. That, that that was uh I, w- I was not a planner or engineer and uh when i went to college i studied uh, history and kind of diplomacy yeah, was no, my uh, was, was my focus that. so uh which which is uh which you know it's it's actually something that i, I use a lot more in my daily job oh, I bet. than uh you know i have tons of really smart engineers but you know just you know helping or not helping but like understanding that talking to people in the city or within my own department that um you know, it's all about compromise and, you know, telling somebody that they're wrong and their ideas are stupid never gets no. you anywhere. Well, you handled um, that beautifully. Yeah. yeah. Well, so thank you. Well, just in parting, if the Nazgul attempt to cross the broad ripple, just make sure that the elves are there mm-hmm. uh, to cast a magical spell. Certainly. Thanks, Jameson. Thanks. Yeah, man. Thank you. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.